The Sportsman's Nation is a 2% for conservation certified business. This means that we donate 1% of our time and 1% of our revenue to conservation. If you want to find out how you or your business can get certified or learn more about the organization, visit fishandwildlife.org. You're listening to the Average Conservationist Podcast, brought to you by Go Hunt and in partner with 2% for Conservation. Sign up to become a Go Hunt Insider today at GoHunt.com. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for Conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitments as popular brands like Sitka, First Light, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of time and dollars back to fish and wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their communities for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Average Conservationist Podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. Today on the podcast, I am joined by Drew Youngdike, and Drew uh, works for the National Wildlife Federation and also sits on the board of directors for 2% for Conservation. Uh, Drew, born and raised here in Michigan like myself, um, and the more we got to speak, uh, especially prior to recording, the more we found out that... um, we <clears throat> competed against each other uh, in high school athletics, so we we got a chance to kind of offline, but talk a little bit about that, and it's really cool getting to know someone who had a very similar upbringing, um, came from the same you know rural um, kind of community, uh, and seeing the impact um, that he is having on conservation and the role that he is playing um, to to really try to put an end to invasive carp in the Great Lakes region. Anyone who, who's familiar with Drew or has followed uh, Drew on social media over the years has seen a lot of uh, what he is, is trying to help accomplish um, in the Great Lakes region here uh, in regards to invasive carp. And he tells uh, a story and really his, his reasoning behind um, why he decided to uh, pursue that, um, you know, started way back in law school and the reasoning and the explanation behind it is, is really, uh, I don't know if profound is the right word, but, um, it, it, it makes a lot of sense. It hits, excuse me, it hits home for, for a lot of people kind of in the, uh, Northwestern lower part of, of Michigan here. Um, where there's, you know, at a very, there's a very real possibility uh, if something isn't done that these invasive carp species could, you know, reach um, some of these inland lakes uh, that that so many small local towns uh, depend on for tourism and things like that. So Drew goes into it in a lot more detail and really breaks things down. And 
Drew, you know, while he is a, a very avid uh, outdoorsman in terms of uh, hunting and angling, he also spends a lot of time um, just doing non-consumptive outdoor recreation as well. We get to talk about that, um, his love, his new love or his love for surfing that he has uh, and everything like that. So it was uh, it was really fun to to sit down and talk to Drew and kind of talk about, you know, our upbringing and then where he's at now and, and all the cool things that are are, are happening in the future uh, in regards to the Great Lakes region and conservation. So, episode 45, Drew Young Dyke. Enjoy, guys. All right, joining me today, I have 2% Board of Director member Drew Young Dyke. Drew, how's it going, man? It's going really good. Thanks for having me on, Marcus. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Uh, you making some time. I know we've uh, talked a little bit here before. Uh, we started recording and, and realized we have some much closer ties uh, from where we both grew up and high school and all that. So it's uh, it's nice to meet a fellow Northern Michigan athlete and someone who's, you know, really put an emphasis and is making a career out of conservation. Well, I appreciate that. You know, it's it's fun reminiscing on, the, on those old times playing baseball against your high school and some <laughs> mutual friends and, and competitors. But I, I think there's really something to uh, growing up in, in that in that area, both of Northern Michigan, where, where you're really tied to the outdoors, you know, from, from birth, if you want to be, but, but also in, in the conservation space of, of being an athlete at some level, there's a competitiveness in, in getting things done for conservation that I think the, the things that you go through as a high school athlete, or if you're good enough to, to do it even further, I think prepare you and kind of stoke that fire to, to have those battles and win them for the, the conservation causes that you love. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. I've never really kind of made that comparison or, or looked at it in that regard. But no, you're absolutely right because that athletic, uh, that competitive nature that, that we have as athletes, especially I think, you know, being in Northern Michigan, like we kind of have this chip on our shoulder, right? Like, because it's, you know, we're all from these small towns and, you know, you graduate high school and your class has like 45, 50 kids in it, you know, and then you go to college and you meet all these other students who are like, you know, I had 40 kids in my class in, in one single like classroom, right? And I graduated with, you know, 500, 600 kids. And there's just kind of this like, well, just because you're from somewhere, a bigger school or something like that, somewhere with a little bit more tradition, like I'm just as good as you are. So yeah, there's kind of like this chip on your shoulder, this competitiveness that you want to, yeah, kind of fight and, and do as best as you can when it comes to, you know, not only sports and conservation, but really anything in life. You're kind of always trying to, to prove yourself. It's it's not the Napoleon complex from like being short yourself, but it's yeah. like the Napoleon complex from being from someplace small. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's a very good way to put it, man. So I kind of want to go all the way back to the beginning here, Drew. So, so tell me, how was it that you were kind of introduced to the outdoors? What did that look like for you? You know, I, I grew up in uh, Central Lake, Michigan, which is uh, about an hour north of Traverse City, um, near near the near the west coast of, of Michigan on Lake Michigan, and uh, you know, it was a really varied outdoor uh, experience. I think it wasn't like I was going fishing every weekend. You know, from the time I was born, it was like you know, my aunts would take my cousins and I camping up to Paradise, Michigan, on Lake Superior, and maybe we camp out on on uh, Lake Michigan at Barnes Park. Um, I, I was introduced to hunting. Um, I think back then it, it was usually later, like, like I took hunter safety at 12 years old and then we started small game hunting and then you couldn't even hunt deer until you were 14. 
you know, so back then those were the, the rules per the DNR. So that's right. when I started deer hunting. Um, but, but I think most of my outdoor experience was just like playing in the woods, yeah. uh, behind my grandma's house when I lived in town and we'd go out there and then we moved out to the country when I was like, uh, I think 13 or 14 years old and we had 10 acres. Uh, we had horses, so we'd like ride horses through trails oh, in the nice. woods. Um, you know, I'd hunt small game there and it was only about two miles from Torch Lake. So not even fishing, but just going down and, and swimming in Torch Lake, camping out on the beach. And I think all of those outdoor experiences helped frame what I got into as an outdoor recreationist and conservationist later on in life. And as well as that kind of not just focusing on hunting and fishing, but things like uh, the beach and kayaking and kind of non-consumptive outdoor recreation too. Right. Yeah. And that's one thing that I've, I've noticed. Um, I mean, I, I follow you on Instagram there and you definitely partake in a lot of um, outdoor activities that, like you just mentioned, that aren't just hunting and fishing. And there's kind of one in particular that I mean, I, we kind of we're at it now, so we'll talk about it now. But surfing. Tell me about this, man. Like you seem to have this like this passion for it. <laughs> I've got this like like brand new stoke for this thing that that's kind of what they called, I guess, in surf culture. But I, I never even tried it until let's see when I was like 37. My wife and I were uh, camping um, at Sleeping Bear. And um, there's just one day I'm like, I really want to try this. And there's a shop called Sleeping Bear Surf and Kayak. So I rented a board and I didn't know what to do. And I just kind of paddled out and I didn't even get up like I just like fell off a few times and the rain was coming she was miserable so I'm like okay that's enough so I didn't even get up that first time but then the next year we went to on vacation in Kauai uh in Hawaii and I took like an actual lesson on Hanalei Bay with a school run by this like famous like big wave surfer named uh, Titus Kinamaka and uh, I got up like it was cool like they actually showed me how to do it and I spent that whole week uh with a rented board just like falling off trying to learn figuring it out having fun and then uh last summer we were filming uh a documentary about the potential impacts of invasive carp and we wanted to focus both on fishing but also on that other types of outdoor recreation and tourism that we have in northern michigan so i went back to sleeping bear surf and kayak and uh we did a lesson kind of on okay. film there and i got up a couple times mostly wiped it but i ended up buying the board when we were done like I had so much fun. I'm like, man, I really need to get a board so I can do this more often. She goes, well, you can buy this one. I'll give you a discount. I'm like, yeah, called my bluff. So I, <laughs> I bought it and now I'm like, like I'm invested in it. Right. Yeah. So yeah, so once now you get I'm the board, go for it. And it, it was so fun every time I've actually caught a wave and got on it. I'm a total beginner, you know, but I also, I'm kind of thinking like, you know what? I'm no worse at it than when I first tried to fly fish or when I first tried to shoot a recurve bow, you know, so you, I, guess, I think I've always been um, open to uh, sucking at something new. Embrace the suck, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I think it goes back to my dad. My dad was our was our football coach in Central Lake. Okay. And he had a, a motto that he just ingrained in all of us, both as his son and as his quarterback, is uh, when in doubt, go for it. Yeah. So I just kind of applied that to everything, you know? No, that's uh... – a good kind of motto to have, you know, when in doubt, just go for it. Cause you know, what do you have to lose? Right. I mean, you're not going to be in much of a worse position than you're, than you were in at that particular point or that given spot. So yeah, no. And surfing is cool because, and, and I kind of have a little bit of interest in it. Um, I had taken a trip to California with my wife and uh, one of my buddies, he was out there as well. 
and we just tried it on our own the same type of thing right we were in san diego and we just rented some boards and we're like ah we'll figure it out right like there's three of us here we're all athletes like we can make this happen and it was miserable I mean, it was just like i just got pounded by waves and not even big waves right but just crushed like board flying out from underneath us just the whole nine yards right i mean you probably know exactly what i'm talking about yeah and then almost exactly like you uh, my wife and i on our honeymoon were in hawaii and um some friends of ours as a wedding gift had gotten us uh surfing lessons so we yeah went and did that and it was it's awesome i mean my arms i could barely pick my arms up when i was done from all the paddling but uh yeah it's, it's such a cool thing and it's it's a totally different experience um you know kind of being immersed and being one with the water than like kind of what i grew up with and what you grew up with with you know the outdoors and you know there's a huge difference between you know, swimming in Torch Lake, swimming in Lake Michigan, then the Pacific, right? Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, what I'm really trying to do is gear up to do it in, in Lake Michigan and around the Great Lakes. And I think with my job, I actually end up traveling around the Great Lakes quite a bit. Yeah. And and so it kind of make, makes it worth the investment that I can just bring my board. And, you know, if I can find a couple hours and the wind and the surf and the fetch and all that is just right. I, I got a cold, cold water wetsuit. Okay. Um, that I haven't tried yet, but you know, I'm like, whatever, we'll go for it. We'll, we'll apply some Sisu. And you know, in high school, I did high school rodeo too. And really? I think that kind of prepared me for this as I was used to just riding a couple seconds and then biting it. So when I <laughs> just ride it a couple seconds and then bite it on the surfboard, I'm like, yeah, you know, I know that it can be fun even at those brief intervals. <laughs> well, yeah, no, no, that's, that's a great way to look at it. And like you said, you you have the equipment, you have the gear, the wetsuit and the board. I mean, that's a nice thing is you don't need a lot of stuff for surfing. But yeah, if you're spending your time and you're traveling around, you know, the the different shores and coasts of of kind of the, the Great Lakes region. I mean, hell yeah, man. Throw that thing in the back and you never it's like, you know, it's like when you throw like your, your fly rod or something in the back of your truck. Like you never know when you're going to stumble across a stream or a lake and you just want to, you know, throw a couple casts out there. Absolutely, man. Yeah. And I bring that too. Yeah. <laughs> The, the truck stays stocked with uh, all sorts of outdoor activities. Yeah. So, Drew, not only um, are you a member of the board of directors for 2%, but um, you also have your, your regular job, your 9 to 5, is in the world of conservation. So tell me, it is, tell me what it is that you do. Right. So I'm the director of conservation partnerships for the National Wildlife Federation out of our Great Lakes Regional Center. And as part of that, um, I'm the main point of contact uh, and support for our independent state affiliates in Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois. And as context for this, I know you're familiar with Michigan United Conservation Clubs in Michigan. Yep. Um, I used to work for them for about five years before I came to the National Wildlife Federation. Um, in fact, I know you know Nick Green. I, I, I had his job before him. Okay. All right. Very good. <laughs> and um, they're an independent statewide organization and the national wildlife federation has a independent statewide affiliate in every state as well as a couple of territories okay some of them are like mucc they're more kind of hook and bullet and some of them are like uh, my affiliate in illinois the prairie rivers network that's really like a watershed environmental organization and what the national wildlife federation does is we kind of channel to take the input from all of those independent statewide organizations that have varied interests from conservative hook and bullet conservation organizations to a little more kind of liberal environmental organizations. And we find where they can work together, where they have a common agreement. And then we channel that power of all of them together to work on those mutual priorities at the national level. 
Okay. And out of the Great Lakes region, we work on uh, Great Lakes issues, but especially ones that have like a federal level because it might be something that's a local issue, but if the solution has to come from the you know federal agency or getting a bill passed there, we can then leverage our whole you know nationwide uh, power structure to to get it done. Okay. And what that requires is a lot of relationship building. Um, and you know when you're dealing with especially now organizations that are independent from each other, they're not like a chapter of NWF. Right. They're their own organizations. They kind of tell us what to do. So in order for us to, you know, make sure that this, you know, hook and bullet organization here is working well with this environmental organization here, you know, we, we have to be, uh, we have to network, we have to support them. We have to show value to them. We have to make sure that, that we're diving in on their priorities to help them as well. Yeah. So that when we ask them to help with our priorities, you know, we're all doing that together. And so my job is kind of managing that relationship with those affiliates. And then I do a lot of communications work as well on our Great Lakes issues, things like invasive carp or uh, line five or that kind of thing. Yeah. And I'd imagine, especially over the last, you know, 12 to 24 months, that that has to be uh, fairly difficult, right? In terms of, you know, working with you know, let's just call it both sides of the aisle with conservative and the more liberal. Now, while it's not politics, it's still, you know, it's still going to be hard to kind of keep that out of it if, if that's kind of your, um, you know, the way that you lean or the way that you think in terms of, you know, outdoor uh, activity. So how difficult is that and, and how much of a learning curve was there for you in, in terms of being able to to work with both sides and to help both sides see, uh, you know, the other's point of view and, and where they could find the common ground? Um. The, the learning curve as far as the work uh, was was swift because um, I came on board with that position uh, in September 1st of 2020. Okay. So we're right in the middle of it, right? So, yeah. um, but but I think from my background and my professional background, it's 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 why I felt comfortable with that position is I've worked for environmental organizations. I've worked for MUCC. Um, I'm kind of in the middle of myself. I consider myself a hunter and angler, but also an environmentalist and a hiker and a kayaker and a surfer and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, um, I, I used, I actually started my career with the Michigan league of conservation voters before I went to MUCC. I kind of go, you know, one, one side and then the other and yeah. switch back. And, uh, and because just... I'm kind of in the middle, I'm always kind of yeah. darting between the environmental and more conservative conservation side. Because really, the, the issues that we're talking about when it comes to conservation, there's a reason why 2% for conservation has a purple logo. Right. The issues themselves are not partisan. And and when we look at the issues themselves, we look at taking care of our land, taking care of our water, taking care of the wildlife and the fish, whether you want to watch them or hunt them, um, it's, it's the same thing that it, that is required to take care of them. Yep. It requires funding. It requires advocacy. And so for those of us who consider ourselves, whether it's a conservationist or environmentalist or both, it requires both our, our time and our energy and, and our money and our advocacy and our voice uh, to, to get them done and to conserve them for whatever we want to use them for or not use them. Yeah. And I think that that's what you just mentioned there. That's one of the areas where people kind of kind of tend to get hung up on it, right, is they 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 don't see, you know, the side of it who, like you said, you know, likes to watch birds or likes to just hike, you know, where, you know, like a, the hook and bullet crowd where, you know, they want to, you know, fish, they want to hunt these birds or hunt these animals in, in the same space. 
And they both have the same interest and the same kind of end goal in terms of, you know, the, the habitat or the, the animal living in the habitat. They just go about it. They just get there in different ways, right? Yeah, and, and I don't know too many hunters and anglers, especially probably of like at least our generation just because I know them better, but I don't know too many who just do one thing and yeah. don't do the others. You know, sometimes when I go down the Huron River, um, you know, in my kayak, you know, maybe my wife and I are just paddling and we're just having fun. Sometimes I bring my fly rod and I'm an angler. Sometimes I don't bring it. I'm just a kayaker, right? Yeah. Like, it's a really similar experience. Sometimes when I hike in the Pigeon River country, I do it in the summer. Sometimes I bring, bring my fly rod. Sometimes I don't. Uh, sometimes I do it in the fall and I bring my bow and I'm a hunter. But but it's not that much different than when I'm a hiker, especially when I don't see anything or shoot anything. <laughs> right bow hiking yeah Um, it ends up being a really similar experience so i think these activities that we tend to separate are not that different yeah no that that's a very good point i i i haven't had in my short career of of kind of doing this the the podcast i haven't had anyone kind of really phrase it or, or pose it like that but that's that's a very good point because yeah i mean what if you're out hiking and i'm out hiking with a bow right like just because for you know, three to five minutes or 10 minutes, if you're putting a stock or whatever the case is, like, because of what you do in those five minutes, like it's 95% of the time we're doing the same thing, right? We're out there, we're enjoying it, we're kind of taking everything in. And just because, you know, you or I want to harvest an animal and the other one doesn't at that particular time, like, you know, you guys still enjoy the same thing, doing it the same way. So yeah, that, that's, that's a very good point. Yeah, I think, I think though, what I appreciate of, of, of being a hunter I think even when I'm hiking though, I'm, I'm looking at through the, at, at things through those eyes. Yeah. Like maybe I don't hike as fast. I hike a little slower. I'm, I'm trying to see things that I, I would, I would see as a hunter, but I think because I've hunting is something I've always done. I haven't always been a hardcore angler, but I've kind of always hunted. And so I don't know what it's like to not look through those eyes. Yeah. that That's a good point because, and I, shit you're you're like making me do all this thinking this morning man so <laughs> no but that that's true because yeah like even like if my wife and I you know just go for a walk like on a trail or you know kind of a local conservation area or anything like that that you know all you're doing is just walking around right like stretching the legs enjoying the views and yeah I, I just can't help myself but to yeah look at it through the eyes of, of a hunter, right? Like you're looking for game trails, you're looking for like, you know, deer sign or, or anything like that. And yeah, that's, that's a very, a very good point. So yeah, I think, Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I think one of the things I do most outdoors right now is just take short little hikes in the neighborhood nature area with my boy in the backpacker. Now he's walking real well on his own. So he just runs along on his own. And these are like short, maybe half mile hikes like, yeah. like just in the local nature area like within the city of ann arbor but there's deer trails through there and i'm pointing out tracks to him and i'm not trying to make him into a hunter yet like that's something i don't know if, if he wants to do that later on in life like once he understands all that kind of stuff i'll help him but i'm not forcing him into it but i yeah. just want him to understand and appreciate nature yeah. and i think if you do that the rest will come on its own however it happens yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it, uh, yeah, it just it just kind of lays a good foundation for them, you know, to make that decision whenever they get to that point in their life on if they want to pursue hunting and angling or if they, you know, just want to enjoy nature in their own way. So tell me, how was it that you exactly got started with the National Wildlife Federation? Yeah, it's actually a, kind of a, a long, complicated story. <laughs> um, I, I went 
you know, I, I wasn't going into the environmental conservation field at all coming out of high school. Um, I was on a straight path to being a lawyer, um, studied political theory at, and constitutional democracy at Michigan State, went directly into law school, um, kind of decided I didn't want to do that. I, I ended up dropping out of law school, um, moving up uh, north. I actually uh, plowed out like natural gas wells around Johannesburg and Lewiston. Yeah, um, there you go. All throughout <laughs> there um, and took care of those. Moved down to Chicago and then um, my wife and I, who had been dating since like, you know, college, we got married and um we moved back to Michigan when she got a job at U of M. So we moved to Ann Arbor. So I went back to finish up law school and I, I, I decided that I needed to channel it into a direction that I had a personal interest in. And so I, I finished up. And as part of that, I did a uh, independent study in wildlife law on when all the States tried to sue Illinois to shut down the Brandon road okay, um, or shut down the, the Chicago area waterway system to keep invasive carp out of the great lakes. So that was my first entry into conservation and environmentalism is, is finishing up law school by doing an independent study in there. I wrote a law review paper on uh, what was going on with those lawsuits. And then when I, when I you know, passed the bar and um, you know, actually became a lawyer, my first job out of law school was with the Michigan League of Conservation Voters, really because of that, um, that invasive carp study. And it was evaluating Michigan Supreme Court environmental decisions for the organization. And that really led into uh, conservation and environmental advocacy for me. And at the time, we actually rented an office out of the National Wildlife Federation office in mm. Ann Arbor. So I got to know everybody that worked for, for NWF there. We'd have lunch together. And then I worked to work for Michigan United Conservation Clubs, which is the Michigan affiliate for the National Wildlife Federation. So I'd work with them on things like um, uh, like renewing the Land and Water Conservation Fund. I've been Before we, we made it permanent just in the yeah. last year in the last couple of years um you know it was getting it expired in i think 2015 then we had to renew it like i worked on that with nwf um when i worked at mucc okay and then um, when a position came open at nwf to uh, work primarily in communications on the invasive carp issue where i really started my conservation career and to spend most of my time on that which i still spend a good chunk of it on that issue um i jumped at it and um, so that's kind of where I came to NWF from is I'd, I'd worked with them from my previous jobs in, in conservation. But as far as working on protecting the Great Lakes and invasive carp, that's been the common thread throughout my entire career, um, wherever I've been at, you know, starting with finishing up law school and, and studying it. So and, and I've seen you post and, and talk a lot about the invasive carp and the issues that we have here in the Great Lakes. So is it is it fair to say that, you know, it's almost kind of like a happenstance that when, when you first kind of got into the field of conservation and that was what you had worked on is, and, and that's kind of what's carried you through. And that's why you become so passionate about it. Um, I, I chose that as a study topic. Okay. You chose um, it. Okay. Deliberately because really of where I grew up. Yeah. Um, Central Lake is, is on a little lake called intermediate Lake. Um, it's part of a chain of lakes up in, um, uh, Northwest Michigan there. Now there's a dam in Elk Rapids that actually prevents like direct access to the Great Lakes, but the whole Great Lakes coast there, the the Grand Traverse Bay, if they got into Grand Traverse Bay, if they got somehow from there into that chain of lakes, the place where I grew up, Central Lake, that would be a ghost town. Central Lake and those towns and those communities up there where where we grew up, 
you know, especially on, on more of the Lake Michigan side, mm -hmm. they are built on summer tourism. Oh, yeah. People come up there and rent a cottage or, you know, have a second home or something like that for to fish, to um, to tube, to ride a boat. Yeah. Uh, it's because of the water. Right. If invasive carp got into Grand Traverse Bay, got into the chain of lakes and it impacted the fishing. And if you, if when you went water skiing, you had silver carp jumping out and knocking you off of it, yeah. people wouldn't come up there, right? right. Oh, like yeah. that's what that area has. Uh, the population triples in the summer. A lot of the businesses there make their entire year during the vacation season. And if that was shut down or even diminished um, at a partial scale because of invasive carp getting into those waters and the places that I care about where I grew up, um, wouldn't be what they are. And so that's that's why I chose that as a study topic, and that's really why I've kind of developed my passion for keeping them out. Yeah, no, that's that's a great reason to to want to further, um, you know, further the fight and, and, and try to, to do everything that you can in your position to make sure that that doesn't happen because, yeah, that's, I mean, I you know, we grew up, you know, maybe an hour, a little more or so from each other, and while, you know, I wasn't that close to like Lake Michigan, you know, we still have a ton of a ton of lakes. And, you know, it's the same situation where population in my small town doubles, triples during the summertime. And, yeah, if there was some type of reason that, you know, could could cause that to not be there anymore, to not have a lot of these, you know, people who I grew up with and that our family members, you know, their livelihood with their business um, be at jeopardy because of that, then yeah, I would, I would feel the same way and want to do everything I could to make sure that that, you know, that that didn't happen. Yeah. And that's actually part of, uh, we, when we made the film last year, uh, it was called, uh, against the current, which by the way, was actually the name of my law review paper. <laughs> <laughs> I use the same name for the film because I think it, it works. Um, you know, we had uh, Jordan Brown, uh, film it from Michigan out of doors TV. We hired him. He's a, Ter terrific filmmaker, just complete professional. Um, but those are some of the areas that, that we highlighted. Uh, Mammoth Distilling um, in Central Lake uh, to talk about the tourism, Sleeping Bear, Surf and Kayak. Yeah, there you um, go. You know, there to talk about that. Um, and we went up on uh, Little Travers Bay and talked to Doug Craven with the Little Travers Bay Band of Badawa Indians. He's their natural resources director. And he would talk, he talked about the impact that would have on their uh, tribal treaty fisheries okay. um, as well. So, you know, I wanted to start there um, because that, that was the connection I think is, is most, most relevant or at least made it most relevant for me and the people that I know. Yeah. So Drew, where do you think it is that, you know, the, the, the conservation mindset and the passion that you have for, it, you know, where did that kind of develop or where did that come from? From my grandpa. Yeah. Um, really simply. Um, you know, I, I wasn't much of a of an angler until college. Um, you know, in the summers in, in high school, you know, I'd go to the beach. We'd yeah. I did summer, you do high summer school kid things, yeah. When, when that got done, we'd go up to Victories in Petoskey or we'd, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, we'd go to bonfires. like. And, but in, in college, my grandpa moved back from – Wyoming. He lived in Wyoming my whole life. And uh, they got a place on uh, Grand Traverse Bay and he had a fishing boat. He loved to fish and to spend time with him in the summers. I'd go over on the weekends and uh, take him fishing on George Lake and uh, Lake Skagamog. And uh, <laughs> that first summer, I think I showed up to the boat 
and he's like, all right, you got this, you got that. And he goes, I got a rod for you. Like I didn't even have a fishing rod at the time, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and he goes, you got your license. I'm like, no, nah. he's like, he read me the riot act in my entire <laughs> life. I had never, I had never done that. Like I, I showed up to his boat without my fishing license <laughs> and he like read me the riot act on, on where those fees come from, on what it means. You know, he was a member of Rocky Mountain Foundation and like every other conservation organization you can, you can imagine for the things that he did. And yeah, we didn't, I didn't even step on the boat. We went right into the, uh, the tackle shop, you know, near the, um, what do you call it? The boat launch there and, uh, bought my license Yeah, and, never made that mistake again yeah (laughs) Yeah. i mean sometimes you got to learn a tough lesson right (laughs) you know you know i'd I'd hunted a little bit but like i I hunted the first couple years and you know we had hunter safety and Mm -hmm. that kind of thing but i I just hunted like a couple years there but once i got into varsity sports i I didn't even hunt until college again yeah you don't you know i was just totally out of that and so you know i would say that you know maybe they laid the groundwork from there when i started like small game hunting um, but, but I think that's when it made it real when he, you know, he was a person that I respected the most. Yeah. Um, he, he was a person that I looked up to as my hero. And so when, when, when he read me the riot act, when he explained it like that, um, you know, that, that set the tone. And then we, we did that for, for, you know, every summer until he passed away a couple years later. And, and I think, I think that's what, what made me really, really care about it, um, to the level that I do. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what I find with a lot of people is that that mindset, that that love, that passion that it's instilled in them by either a parent or a grandparent. You know, it's it's not that you can't pick it up later in life. You know, especially as you you know um, develop a, a love for a specific activity or a sport or a hobby. But a lot of times, it's it comes at an early age, and it sometimes I don't want to say it wavers, but it it comes and goes, right? Like you just mentioned. You know, when when he got into high school, he did high school kid things, right? Especially in northern Michigan and, you know, hunting and fishing. While it's nice to do those when you had some free time, usually it was when you didn't have anything else to do, right? And and, and, and you were partaking in it in that regard. So, yeah, I, I totally um, see how that, how you can kind of be introduced at a young age and how that doesn't really go away. Yeah, and I think part of it, too... You know, I was still on a track to being maybe like an insurance lawyer or something at that point. Um, when we lived in Chicago, um, that, that didn't suit me well. Like, yeah. it was just weird for me. And, and you know, it's like you grow up in a town of a thousand people in northern Michigan surrounded by the woods and waters. Like, and then you're surrounded by concrete. Like, it just didn't fit. Right. And so we lived there. I lived there for a couple of years. When we moved back to Michigan, it was like I'd been deprived of all those woods and waters. And suddenly I wasn't. Yeah. Suddenly it, it just like. You know, it's like when you pull back a bow, right? You're you're creating tension. When you release that tension, it, it goes forward, you know, with a lot of velocity. Yeah. And when I got back to Michigan, it was like that. And and this thing that I'd missed that maybe I didn't realize how much I appreciated it until, uh, you know, I was away from it for yeah. a couple of years. Um, man, I came back with a lot of velocity into, into the conservation space. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it, it's funny, man. The more we're talking, the more we have a lot of same similarities. Cause I spent, um, my wife went to graduate school in Chicago. So I was out there, I lived out there with her for a year and we moved out there, um, like August, September timeframe. So, you know, summers in Chicago are cool. I mean, cause you got the lake right there, you know, there's all these different restaurants and bars to go to. So like the first two or three months, I was like, oh, this is cool because the weather was beautiful. We we're, you know, going around, going out and doing things all the time and going to the beach. And then like 
very shortly after that, like the whole allure just wore off. And I was like, <laughs> like Chicago's, I mean, it, it, it's a lot like any other city and it's cool, but it's just like, it's not for me at all. Like, like I said, after like three months, I was like, get me out of this place. Right. Like, <laughs> and everything I wanted to do, like I love to ski in the winter and there just wasn't a lot of like very good skiing in the area. I like, obviously I like to hunt and I was coming back to Michigan, you know, three, four times during the fall to hunt. I'm like this. No, I I gotta get out of here. Well, then because you're paying, you know, like out of state licenses to do that, yeah. and like I I didn't have a place to park, so I sold my Jeep before I moved there, and you know I take the L to work and that kind of stuff. So I didn't have like a vehicle to come back other than taking like the Amtrak or something, you know. Yeah, and I had you know, so it wasn't like I could just go out on the weekend and get back to it, but you know it's it's a great city and and really that that lake there was my saving grace because yeah. like that was what connected me to home like lake michigan like yeah, the great lakes like straight across I'd go down yeah. to the north avenue beach and i'm like okay i feel a little bit more centered here because this is my lake yeah yeah exactly <laughs> and yeah no when i was out there i had this you know i had this big chevy avalanche truck i could never freaking park the thing anywhere <laughs> like it was awful man it was it was awful and, and you know my wife still had a year of school left um, you know, she finished up school and then she moved back to Michigan, uh, cause I moved back after a year and yeah, it was, I'll go there for a weekend, but yeah, I'm not trying to live there again. Yeah. Great city. Um, I think I just, and great, great for a lot of people. I think I just grew up just a little bit too small town for it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Same here. And it was the same thing where you don't like, I, I knew what I grew up in, but I didn't appreciate it until like, it was not even like an option because even you know, like in like when I went to college, I went to Saginaw Valley, so I was still only a few hours away, right? I could still, yeah. if I wanted to, you know, go back, you know, make this short drive up 75 and I'd be back home. But then there, it's like, okay, now it's like a six-hour drive, seven-hour drive, and it's not super easy to just do after work or something like that. So, yeah, you just, you miss it and you took it for granted. And then, you know, when you're out there, you're like, why would I have ever left that place? Like, why would I leave, you know, aside from, you know, not a real great job market up there and a lot of potential in that regard but it's like man we had everything at our fingertips and i was just like no get me out of here because when you're 18 and you grow up in that small environment you're like I, I i need bigger bigger places i need more people i need all this and then you know i get into my you know mid to late 20s i'm like i don't need that i need less people <laughs> more open spaces yeah so yeah. for well for for a girl yeah that's why that's why you leave that's why you move away right and, yeah, and that's worth it but yeah it's it's good to be able to get back up there quite a bit and um you know even in ann arbor here we we have a lot of great natural features around we have the huron river yeah uh, a lot of uh, nature areas to hike in we have the pickney recreation area real close by so um and and of course the great lakes and, and up north is just a couple hours away so yeah. it's it's i really appreciate it now yeah, definitely. So I want to talk a little bit more about the invasive carp, uh, because that's obviously, like I mentioned before, I've seen you, you know, really talk about that a lot throughout social media over the last few years. So kind of at a very kind of high level, break down, you know, what the, the biggest issue is with invasive carp and kind of what, um, you know, a lot of these organizations are doing to try to combat that. You bet. So invasive carp is a catch-all term that includes big head, silver, black, and grass carp. Um, they're four species that were uh, imported mainly into like Arkansas fish farms in like the 60s and 70s. And they're filter feeders, so they would like clean up the sewage retention ponds. And actually even the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service imported grass carp. And some of the other species within it kind of came in accidentally 
um, with those importations. But then you have flooding uh, in the 70s, especially flooding in the early 90s. And it got these um, invasive carp that were brought deliberately into these uh, southern aquaculture facilities. They washed out and got into the Mississippi River system. And then they just started spreading north and, and out within the Mississippi River system into all of its tributaries and made their way up into Illinois, um, have made their way into large swaths of Indiana and parts of Ohio. And the, the Mississippi River system connects to the Great Lakes through the Chicago area waterway system, as well as a few other points, but that's the main one. And it was um, that Chicago River waterway system artificially connected those two watersheds. Okay. They weren't originally connected, but they connected back um, in like the, I think, like right around the 1900 turn of the century. Okay. Um, those channels then created a, a pathway that the invasive carp could get into Lake Michigan and then throughout the Great Lakes. There are a series of electric barriers and there's some locks and dams in there. They provide some protection, but for instance, in 2017, a silver carp was found on the wrong end of those electric barriers, only about nine miles from Lake Michigan. Back when I did my, my law review paper, um, that was when they first found eDNA, which is called environmental DNA. It's really just traces of a certain species of fish okay. that they find in the water, even if they don't find the actual fish. And it's when they started finding those traces of eDNA on the wrong side of those barriers as well. And so what's been going on is we're trying to both fish them down where they already are and provide funding to do that. We're trying to get the funding um, for new technologies to be developed and researched and tested out of ways both to remove them and keep them out of new waters. And then the big thing we're working on is called the Brandon Road Lock and Dam. It's a, it's a U.S. Army Corps of Engineers project that's been years in development um, it's now been approved by Congress. And what it would do is take this lock and dam near Joliet, Illinois, which kind of creates a choke point between the Mississippi River system, you know, through the Illinois River mm -hmm. before it gets in the Chicago area waterway system where they can get to Lake Michigan. It's kind of a choke point right there. Okay. And they're going to rebuild this lock and dam by inserting an engineered channel. And within that channel, they'll do kind of a suite of smart kind of new technologies that keep the invasive carp out but and here's the real important part to actually getting it done still allows navigation and shipping to continue okay that was a critical piece if you were going to shut down the locks and not have shipping go through there it would definitely keep the invasive carp out but you'd never get congress to pass it right yeah, <laughs> right if you, if you so shut down a, yeah that's a critical part of this um the the engineered channel is going to have electric barriers it's going to have like bubble curtain uh, that provides both uh, sound, uh, so like auditory, visual, and physical um, barriers to invasive carp to turn them around. It's going to have acoustic deterrence, um, silver carp, and, and I guess I should jump back of why they're bad. They eat up all the food for the native species as filter feeders and starve them out yeah. um, from the way up, but also silver carp will jump out of the water. Um, yeah, we've you know, all seen those videos. Yeah, pounds and they'll you know jump out when they're disturbed by like boat motors, even a paddle slap in the water. So they use that same sound technology to get them to turn around okay. and and be a barrier to them. And then that lock will also flush out, like the whole lock when the when the ships are in it will get flushed out with new water and go backwards. So any remaining invasive species within the water get flushed backwards. Okay. Um, so those it's going to take a long time to build. 
Um, in the meantime, we're trying to make sure that we continue funding through things like the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative so that uh, state agencies uh, can both fish them down, monitor them, and also incentivize commercial harvest uh, to keep their numbers lower. It's kind of that two-pronged strategy. Everywhere, you know, from, from Illinois down into uh, Kentucky and Kentucky Lake and Tennessee and the Mississippi River system, you need to reduce those populations to reduce the pressure of pushing them up north. Right, right. Um, but you also need the big infrastructure projects like the Brandon Road Lock and Dam to provide that barrier to keep them out. And when we did that film, you know, I, I've studied them. I worked, I've worked on the policy regarding them for a long time, but I never, you know, actually seen them or touched them. Yeah. Um, up until that point. And yeah, when we were, we were on uh, the Wabash River in Indiana near uh, Lafayette, West Lafayette, where Purdue is. And, uh, yeah, we were driving around. They are just jumping out of the boat wake. They jumped in the boat with me. You can see it um, oh. in the film. Uh, you can find that actually on our YouTube or Great Lakes Regional Center YouTube. Also, we have a Vimeo channel. Okay. Um, and, and you can watch that. But it was an eye-opener. And while I've read a lot about them and, you know, seen a lot of videos and worked a long time on the policy experiencing it like that just made it that much more real for me as far as the need to keep them out. Yeah. Now, as far as the, uh, the Brandon road lock and dam project that you just mentioned, what is kind of a, a time frame? I know you said it, it's still, you know, kind of very early on, you know, since it, it they're, they just passed, um, the, the law for it. What, uh, what is kind of a, a rough time frame to, to get something like that implemented? long time. So now that Congress has approved it, um, and actually they're in a phase called pre-construction engineering and design. The other big thing that happened actually just in January is they announced that the state of Illinois and the state of Michigan came to an agreement with the Army Corps of Engineers for Illinois to be the local sponsor, okay. which they need that because that's where the project will actually take place. And there's a, there's a, a local cost share component to this that was needed too. And actually the state of Michigan is providing 8 million of the 10 million local cost share um, to help move this project forward in this pre-construction engineering and design phase. This is a phase that could last two to three years. It's, okay. it's where they scope out the plans of exactly how they're going to build this project. There's still some technologies they have to do some testing on to make sure it's going to work in that location. And that could take two to three years before they begin the construction. Once they begin the construction, it could take, you know, five, six, seven, eight years at that point. However, they're going to build it in phases. So once they start construction, it's not like it won't be effective until it's finally complete. Right. They'll start putting in one barrier technology, then add another, then another. Okay. So once they get that first barrier technology in there, that'll be some additional protection. As they keep building it out, you're going to have, you know, the full range of protection it will provide. But the way I look at it is some people say, well, isn't it going to be too late? Well, not if we keep the pressure on them and fishing them down. Not if we keep the uh, Great Lakes Restoration Initiative funding, funding the monitoring and control and the Asian Carp Re Regional Control Strategy that all the agencies work on. There's there's a lot to this that is that are keeping them at bay now. This is going to provide that added protection um, that, that keeps them out of the Great Lakes that won't require such annual appropriations every time. So it's kind of like, we're, it's a really expensive project. Yeah. Might be over $800 million, um, which seems like a lot, except that the Great Lakes sport fishery is a $7 billion annual industry. Yeah, that's peanuts compared to that then. Yeah, so you're spending 800 million once, 
to preserve a seven billion dollar annual industry that's yeah. actually a really good investment yeah yeah it is <laughs> you know and, and let's say that it's finally complete 10 years from now somebody some people say that that's too late we don't know that if we keep this if we keep fishing them down if we keep the pressure on i don't want to get to 10 years from now and then they get in and know that we could have done something to stop them and we didn't because we right. thought it was taking too long right so let it goes back to what what I started this conversation with. When in doubt, go for it. Yeah. Let's stop them. Let's let's invest in the infrastructure. It's going to put a lot of people to work, um, but it's also going to preserve a lot of jobs throughout the Great Lakes region that are built on outdoor recreation and water-based tourism. Yeah, and you know the the efforts to keep uh, the invasive carp, you know, kind of at bay or out of the Great Lakes, you know, up to this point has worked, right? You, you guys, you know, the the all the efforts have have worked. So you know, to, you just have to sustain that. Right. And, you know, I'm sure there's going to be, you know, new things that develop over the next, you know, eight to 10 years outside of, um, you know, the Brandon road lock and dam that can help, you know, further, uh, keep them at bay and keep them out. And like you said, fishing them down and, and different tech, different types of technology. So a lot can happen in those 10 years to, to make it a little bit easier to get to that kind of 10 year point, you know? Right. And actually, uh, coming up, uh, Pretty soon here, the states of, for instance, uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin are working together with the federal agencies to do a new, um, it's called the unified method. It's kind of like they just herd them into smaller areas of the water that they're in. Uh, but they're going to apply that um, on those, on the Mississippi River and on those rivers um, systems up there, like the near La Crosse and that kind of thing. So they're okay. going to, yeah, multiple states and agencies working together. Um, there are no big head or silver carp populations in the Great Lakes now that, that we know of. And they do intensive surveying and monitoring. Um, so it's important to know that they're, they, they're not already in as far as populations. There are some grass carp in the Lake Erie system. And so they're trying different systems to get rid of them, like uh, tagging them. Um, they call it Judas fish. Or they tag some of the fish, follow them to where they go to the rest of the fish, and then uh, try to remove them there. Gotcha. Um, so there are some grass carp in the Lake Erie system, but there's no big head and silver carp in the in the Great Lakes, and we're trying to keep it that way. So it's not too late yet, as long as we keep the urgency up, keep the pressure up, keep the funding flowing, and get these projects done. Yeah. So I want to shift gears a little bit here, Drew, and um, obviously one of the, the reasons we've been able to kind of sit down and, and talk more about these different things is, you know, being the board, being on a board, let me try that again, being on the board of directors for 2% for Conservation. Uh, so tell me, how was it that you first learned about 2%? You know, I, I was one of the, the founding members of the Michigan chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Um, back in 2016, I think, is when we established that chapter. And I think that's where I first heard about it from, um, you know, through through that chapter. And, yeah. um, you know, even after I, I stepped off the board when, you know, I kind of stepped up my role with NWF, I was kind of worried there's a conflict there. Um, but... The, the concept of 2% means so much. It's actually something that, that we employ through our um, uh, office in the Great Lakes Regional Center for NWF. We, we help organize um, a, a group called the Great Lakes Business Network, which is businesses throughout the region that lend their voice um, to some of the Great Lakes causes. So it's the same concept. It's businesses that are reliant upon outdoor recreation, um, it's in their interest to give back to the conservation of that yeah. resource. 
Um, and that's what the 2% for conservation businesses do. What I really like about 2% is it actually verifies that they're doing it yeah. Yeah. <laughs> at a level. And it's not just financial. It's 1% financial, but also 1% of their time. Because for businesses, so often the conservation policy battles are, are pitted as business versus environmentalists. Yeah. It's, that's not really it. A lot of times there's a lot of businesses that are reliant upon the conservation of the natural resources. And so by conserving those natural resources, you're actually providing the atmosphere for those businesses to thrive. And so that flips the narrative. And that narrative is really important to actually getting some of these conservation policies done. So in addition to the on the ground work, just having businesses that say we care about public land, we care about clean water, that helps the case for conserving that public land and keeping that water clean. Yeah. And and to me, that's a really, a really important part of what 2% for conservation does. Yeah. Um, now, I know you just came on as a board member, I believe, well, it's probably about a year ago now. Just about a year ago. Yeah. Yeah. So I've, I've had a few other board members on. Uh, we just had, you know, Dan on, we've had uh, Jess Johnson on, uh, Sam so, and everyone kind of has like the, an area and kind of a reason that they were brought on board, you know, whether it's, you know, like Jess with uh, like the policy side of things. So what is it that, that you kind of focus on within the, the board of directors there? Uh, communication. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'm a member individually. I'm and kind of in my spare time. My side gig is I'm an outdoor writer. Um, yeah. And through both my communication role with National Wildlife Federation um, and my side gig, I'm a member of like the Outdoor Writers Association of America, Association of Great Lakes Outdoors Writers. Um, and so I, I do a lot in the outdoor media space and Jared then kind of, well, we'll have a lot of conversations. They'll talk to me about ways to get the 2% for conservation message out through those channels. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's been really cool to hear, um, and speak with some of the different board members, especially and how their role or the role that they play on the board and the different kind of, uh, outlooks and, and really areas of expertise that, they bring and, and make such a, a well-rounded board of board of directors, you know, uh, I mean, business owner, you know, business owners, uh, you know, people who work in policy, in your example, communication biologists. So it's, I feel like from a, from a board of directors standpoint, 2% has certainly done the right thing in terms of bringing in this, you know, mixed bag of people who have all these different, you know, not only professional, but life experiences as well, that kind of help shape and, you know, really stand for that, you know, purple color that, that they, that they go for. Right. And, and kind of cover everything. It's not partisan. It's we're all for one. That's right. It's a, it's a great organization. You know, I, I really don't have much expertise outside of the great lakes region. Mm -hmm. Um, so they get some great lakes regional representation there. I was actually a, a committee member before I was on the board. Okay. Um, too. And, and the committee members, I think are really where it happens. Um, guys like uh, Zach Snyder, yep. uh, here in Michigan, um, really help connect businesses when they say, businesses might want to want to give back might say yeah i'd like to have that two percent brand for my customers so they know i'm 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 doing the right thing but what do i do it's those committee members who are volunteers throughout the country that say hey here's what's going on locally yeah you know here's where you can plug in and really make a difference and i think that network is really important yeah and that's one thing that i've found uh after since starting my company is 
is how much I, I enjoy kind of working with the local organizations and keeping trying to keep you know a lot of this money that I'm able to to donate back to conservation here within the state where I'm doing you know primarily all of my recreating whether it's fishing or hunting so you know these organizations you know uh, MUCC for example uh, you know NDA I'm working I have a, a t-shirt with them out right now uh, to try to raise some money for the local Michigan chapter here so I really like to see you know the outdoors and have or outdoor habitat and the wildlife, you know, really thrive in, in the areas where I'm, you know, recreating. That That's great. Those are both great organizations. Um, yeah. and I, I'd like to, to leave this too, with just a push for people to, uh, to join your local, your organization for whatever it is you do. Um, you mentioned if you deer hunt, join the NDA. Um, if you hunt and fish in Michigan, join MUCC. Yeah. If you hunt grouse, join the Rough Grouse Society. If you hunt elk, join the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. I, since I started surfing, I joined the Surf Rider Foundation. There you go. Um, you know, like just whatever it is you do, um, join the National Wildlife Federation. We take care of all of it. <laughs> but um, whatever it is you do, go, go at the very least, join the organization that corresponds to the things that you do most. If everybody just does that, we're going to have a lot more support and funding for conservation just at a minimum. Yeah, uh, that kind of summarizes everything. I mean, that that is a great way to uh, to kind of wrap this up. And I know you've got you got to run to another meeting there. So, Drew, I really appreciate it, man. I feel like this was kind of long overdue, and uh, I really enjoyed kind of hearing about all the work that you're doing and and keep fighting the good fight, especially here in Michigan, man. Thanks. I always uh, always enjoyed to talk about conservation and uh, Northern Michigan small town sports. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> all right, Drew, have Take a good care. one, man. All right. Well, a big thank you to Drew for taking some time to hop on the podcast today. I would like to thank our partners over at Stone Glacier and Go Hunt, as well as 2% for Conservation. And if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And there you can see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I encourage you to follow 2% on social media where they're going to post only positive content so you'll enjoy their conservation-focused posts in your feed. So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for joining me this week, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Stay tuned next week and stay safe out there and conservation starts with you.